Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. On this episode, we have Susan Ta, and in this episode, we are talking about more around the topic of race in athletic training, but also beyond. We get into some other conversations. Um, I also had some very good conversations, and it was eye-opening, again, for me, off camera, but we get into it definitely in this episode. We talk about microaggressions, which is timely, as that has been popping up around the athletic training world a little bit more recently, uh, but then really get into Susan's work as an industrial athletic trainer at the time of this recording. She was in the process of getting ready to change jobs and then just some messaging back and forth. Since we recorded, things are going really well in her new role. Uh, just, she's just getting her feet on the ground and crushing it, as you'll hear from this episode. Uh, really fortunate got to connect with Susan. Uh, looking forward to having further conversations in the future. And before uh, we get into the episode, remember we're powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. We appreciate everything they do for us uh, as a podcast, um, as a person, and then for the profession. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. of Athletic Training Chat. Uh, we are on with now second-time guest, Susan Ta. Uh, we are covering a variety of topics today, but all of which I think are extremely important um, for just everything going on in the world and around that. And as a, a follow-up to our roundtable discussion on race and athletic training, we're going to go obviously beyond that. Uh, but then talking about um, advocating within the profession um, and outside of the profession, and I'm really excited to see where you want to go on this one. I've been getting in some discussions in some different groups about that, uh, so I'm very interested to hear what you have to say. Uh, but before we get into that, I'll turn it over to you to give a little bit more of your background um, and what you're at, where you're at, and it sounds like where you're going to be going here um, in the near future from this recording. All right. Thank you so much, Joel. So I'm Susan. I graduated from Radford University um, in 2017, and I've been in the occupational health industrial athletic training sector ever since. I love it so much. Um, it's just really fantastic. I've been able to grow a lot there. You learn a lot about not just analyzing data and kind of the epidemiology of your population you work with or your site that you're at, but you do a lot of prevention, which is my favorite competency of our field. So it's really great for me. And then you get to work with a variety of, um, you know, emergency care and then return to work and rehabilitation and stuff like that. So every day is an adventure. Um, and you get to work with a lot of people. So the site I'm at right now has about 1600 people at it. Oh, wow. um, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I can honestly say that I've helped hundreds of people. <laughs> I literally have. Um, we work together all the time and it's just an enormous place and I love it. But yes, I'm continuing my industrial work, but I will be doing so um, in Florida um, and I'll be moving there in a few weeks. 
still will be industry right now. I'm at a manufacturing facility where we make like where we work with manufacturing rubber and tires and stuff like that. And I will be going to the distribution sector, which I've kind of been there before still within my company, but I've worked in that sector, but this is a company that um, distributes beer. Um, oh, nice. Florida, near the beach. So there will not be a lot of complaining from me, but it will be cool kind of working in the warehousing side of things and fulfillment and also in distribution out in the community and kind of how that affects people because delivery drivers definitely have their own hurdles and their own obstacles as far as health and combating injuries. So oh, yeah. you know, to do that, it'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> oh yeah. That sounds very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I think we were going to start off kind of talking about, um, kind of race in general, but definitely race within, um, athletic training. Uh, I know we mentioned in the round table, not the most diverse profession, um, definitely not yet, um, in any sense, but you had referenced, I believe the black and the ivory then. And I, if I remember correctly, looking at like a hashtag, with it on Twitter and I went and kind of looked around a little bit, but if you could start by just explaining what that means or if that's the best way to kind of just ask the question, I guess would be where I'm at. Um, um, yeah, absolutely. So um, definitely I don't, the credit for it came from two university scholars. Um, they're in the like a uh, professorship, uh, side of things. I wish I had like their Twitters or something to say it so I could give them credit, but you can definitely look them up. They kind of started this because with everything that was going on in the weeks previous, they kind of wanted a way to share their experiences with their own racism that they had um, experienced. So Black in the Ivory is basically a hashtag that talks about being Black in academia or black academics as was kind of a previous term um, for what the experience is like. So that's where it came from. And it was just people sharing their stories with the hashtag black in the ivory because, and I know that's what the creators of it expressed was that when you have these things happen to you, you feel like you're the problem. You're like, man, it must've been me. I must've done something. Maybe it is my fault that like I wasn't able to accomplish this or maybe, you know, and you really do put that burden on yourself because it is being put on you. So when you don't have perspective, all you can say is like, yeah, maybe I'm just, this is who I am. But when you hear other people's stories and you're able to understand that you're not the problem and this is something other people have dealt with too, people you look up to, people you respect, people who are even more intelligent than you could hope to be, it kind of helps you realize that, you know, it's not your fault. And so that is kind of the point of Black and the Ivory. So, yes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen that at all? kind of pop up within athletic training or anything similar to it? Not that you, something would have to be separate from it, but. Right. Um, I would say yes. And I know that I had touched on it a little bit in my previous, um, in the previous round table that we did, but a lot of it really comes from, and something I've noticed with a lot of the black and the black and the ivory um, comments are it comes from people who are antagonizers. And sometimes it's those microaggressions, but sometimes it's just very overtly a professor or a director or a coordinator or someone who just makes life so much harder for you and makes you feel like you don't belong 
Um, and I feel like a lot of people, women, of course, have their own stories, especially in medicine, people just overtly saying to them, like, you do not belong here. Um, that's something that black people have felt. So definitely that idea of, I can't tell you how many times, like people have honestly talking about affirmative action made me or other people feel like we took the spot of a white person who should have been there. Like that is a great idea of black in the ivory. They don't realize that there are plenty of deserving minorities who lost opportunities from just generational problems. And that affirmative action kind of gives them the opportunity to be where they deserve to be. A lot of people feel like they're somewhere they don't deserve to be and they're taking chances away from people who do deserve to be there. So I would say that that's a pretty good idea of black in the ivory and that feeling of like, you're an imposter when you're not, you should be there too. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I've got some questions around that, but I don't want to derail us too far. So if we, if it kind of comes back around, I, I think I'll definitely um, ask you on that, but um, okay. we'll get there because I'm also ask you for some resources. So if you want to start thinking about that in the back of your head as well. Um, <laughs> the other, the next one that we kind of talked about um, were microaggressions. And this is something I have heard of multiple times, but never really in the context of race. And, and the more I think about that is, again, I said it on the round table in, in a follow-up uh, interview with Mercedes is I, I understand that I am like the pinnacle and beacon of that and where I've come from and how I grew up. And I probably had more exposure than some people, uh, definitely not as much as others, but you know, microaggressions, just an interaction between people. Sure. But never considered it really on in the context of race. And so I think I'm really interested on what, like you've already kind of alluded to what some of those things are that, People just don't realize that they do, but they can be pretty impactful. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's a part that I'm going to hold on to for the next question. I'm gonna, I know you're going to ask, so I'm going to stow that away. Okay. But <laughs> the part that I will talk about is um, questioning people was kind of something I wanted to talk about. Um, the idea that, and this is something that I'm sure a lot of um, other minorities or a lot of women are aware of is whenever I have an idea or I want to propose something, and this is from my personal experience, which micro microaggressions are kind of your personal experience. It's sure. how you see something. So that makes it important. But I feel like I have to collect double the evidence because of this idea of just questioning people you feel like you say something and instead of it being accepted as like, okay, yes, that is a valid, you know, it's like you get extra questions of like, oh, why? Like, why did you want to go about it that way? Or, hey, did you make this decision? And they don't have all the answers and you're looking at them like, why are you treating me like I'm stupid? Mm -hmm. Like, I know what I'm doing. So that's a really good idea of it. And I felt it really strongly a while ago when I had had a coworker who like wanted to do something and <laughs> he brought it to our team and my bosses at the time was like, Hey, this is an idea of like something we need to fix. And that was the entire, that was all he, he brought. And I was looking at the email and I was just like, okay, you haven't like given us any 
proposals for how to fix this. You haven't looked at what area is being affected by this issue that you feel needs to be fixed. And I was just looking at it. So I started giving my ideas. It's like, yeah, here's one department that um, I think you should look at. Or if you look at our like epidemiology data that we've collected, you can kind of see which areas. And it was like all of us built his idea to make it a thing. And we're all kind of trying to work into making this happen. But mm -hmm. he was just not at all prepared to have this idea, but it just kind of was built together and occurred. But anytime I have felt like I needed to put an idea forth, you know, even after putting all the effort into the research, knowing where it was coming from, who we need to address it to, possible solutions, I would get these like random questions and I was like, did you read the proposal that I made? Like, right. I all of this together like I, I did it I really did I worked really hard on this so that I think is a good one that just makes you feel like not putting the effort into things especially when people don't put that effort in and it seems like they still get the credit you're just like why do I even try um so that's kind of a good I don't know if I explained that very well but no I I think you did um I I and this is very vivid in my memory of I was in a grad course and we had something and it was me and another guy and a girl in it. And I don't, it was, it was set up to be an exercise similar to like working on this problem. Somebody was a leader and da da da. And I very distinctly remember being called out rightfully so by the female in the group because I asked her more questions than I asked the guy whenever like things were brought. And it was the like most eye opening thing of like, holy crap didn't even realize i was doing that right can't, can't and shouldn't have to explain it because there's no reason for it and it's stuck so vividly in my mind that i try very hard not to do that to anybody in any context now because that was not a fun feeling being called out and so right. it's kind of going to be a follow-up to that is you know what you were saying is do you see any way to help improve that short of calling people out on it and hoping that they understand? Or is that something, again, looking at like an ally in this and that it may be hard, understandably, to call someone out because that's never fun either. But to have somebody else be like, well, wait a second. Why is this different? Because it is what it is type, you know, and how this went down. Um, I, I do have solutions. One awesome. is um, holding everyone to the same standard. So if you feel like when someone says something, you're trying to make it make sense more because you're biased towards the idea of that person says things that make sense. Don't try to make what that person's saying make sense. Ask them questions. So that's something that, um, is that like reverse microaggression where you're looking at someone and they've said something that doesn't make sense, but your boss is like making it work when you know you would not get that benefit. And so the other side of that is when somebody says something and you feel like you don't understand what they're saying, really pause and say like, have they explained this before? How does this tie into what we've been talking about? And really kind of ask yourself these questions before you start asking them the questions so that they don't feel like, they have to re-explain stuff to you. I think that would be a, a great way to do it is really like pausing with people you could be biased against and saying like, or even thinking if this suggestion came from someone else, would right. I ask these questions? I think that would be a great way to really make things kind of even across the board. So I think that is probably a good tactic to use. Oh, I, I like that. I like that one a lot. Yeah. That, 
you know, it's simple think before you speak kind of a deal or like you know listen right. before you try and regurgitate um any other specific micro aggressions um uh, i i know you put a couple notes down but um right. wanted to make sure we didn't skip over anything well, yeah, there is. So there is one that I wanted to talk about, which is an, a microaggression outside of our field. Yep. More because there's kind of a lot of this movement happening, and that's the idea behind the whole, like, defund the police movement, that I know the words kind of throw a lot of people off, so it's kind of hard to think about this. But I would like to encourage people to think of the police as far as, like, police patrol goes as a microaggression. I mean, that's hard to do for people who aren't as familiar with kind of how a lot of policing operates, but that's how I see it. And the research kind of backs up that that's what they do. I think a great idea of that is that um, I was in traffic court a while ago, <laughs> but when I was there, um, nothing too horrible. And it was, <laughs> but <laughs> when I was there, um, People, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to traffic court, but you kind of sit there and you watch people just, you haven't? No, I've been very, very fortunate um, in my, <laughs> in my uh, driving and That's career. Well, I've been to traffic court a few times, so <laughs> I've had one thing, actually. I've only had one ticket, which I'll talk about another time. But, um, but yes, I've been a few times. So what you see in traffic court is you see a lot of people kind of going up to the judge and like explaining what was going on, how they got this ticket and all this stuff. And you really see just, it's like, uh, I'll skip how I'm going to explain that and just go for the next part. Another side of traffic court that you see are lawyers. So in the beginning of traffic court, all the lawyers who people have hired to represent their ticket, because they're like, I don't want to show up to court. I don't want to deal with this. They hire a lawyer and they send a lawyer. And my last time I was in traffic court, it really kind of struck me um, how biased traffic court and traffic policing is against people who don't make a lot of money. So this lawyer came up and he was like, hey, your honor, um, I'm here representing my client, said the client's name and their ticket was 105, I believe, in a 70. And the judge was like, all right. And the, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and so the lawyer was like, um, I move that we uh, move that down to an 89 and a 70 and um, my client will pay the charges and will do an online course because in that state to get an online course, you have to be below 90 miles an hour. And so sure. the judge, okay, cool. Sounds good. Stamped it off. Gone. No information about the client or who he was. I mean, or she was, they were rich enough to have a lawyer. So why does it matter? Right. right. So that other lady who was there, and her ticket was 107 in a 70. So Lord, what, are, what cars do these people drive? Like okay, so 107. Dang. They're like pretty much up north. So I will tell you, and me being from Virginia, where for us, anything above 80 is reckless. Moving down here really like opened my eyes to how fast people go. In Texas, Dude. Arkansas, and Louisiana, I think our speed limits top out at 75. Uh-huh. And People are constantly like, I was driving and a Texas state trooper was on me and I was like, he's going to pull me over. Nope. He went around me going like 105 miles an hour because I was going too slow. So yeah, people go pretty much 90 miles an hour okay. everywhere. Yeah. Wow. Every 
so she was going 170 in a, in a 70 and she was like your honor what will happen if i plead guilty and he was like well you have to pay the charges you'll have to do um i think it was 20 or 30 hours of community service and all the stuff and she was like is there any way that i can do the class instead and he was like no you have to be going under 90 for that and she was like well i'm a nurse you know and i have my family so i wouldn't be able to get this community service in and he was like well i'll give you a little more time to be able to get your community service in." the judge being really nice okay with mm -hmm. the way that taking care of the situation and that's how people would see it but what people didn't see was that someone else who basically did the same thing was able to turn their charge into one that was eligible sure way out while someone else who didn't have that money is now stuck dedicating 30 hours of their life that they could spend working their job or making yep. money or doing something else to dealing with the same ticket and i know the mentality there of course is like well don't do the crime if you don't want to do the, do the time and i agree with that completely i totally understand that mentality also but people don't realize how hard it is for people who are already trying to make ends meet and can barely afford their bills already to on top of that then get pulled over for something and now you're paying those fees i got pulled over going 79 and a 75 in texas and i got what? a 145 dollar ticket yes i'm dead serious wow. The officer pulled me over, and it's in Cumbie, Texas, so anyone listening to this podcast, if they live anywhere near Northeast Texas, everyone knows Cumbie. It's a notorious speed trap. But he pulled me over, and he was like, you were going 79 miles an hour. And in my brain, I'm like, okay. I was like, sorry about that. And he was like, do you have your you know, information and your insurance? And I was like, yeah. And I gave him everything. He went back to his car, and he came back with a $345 ticket. And I was like, are you serious? That's like, incredible. Yes. And so needless to say, a lot of plans got canceled. <laughs> yeah. Months. And that's what happens to people. I mean, I'm from Virginia and around the holidays, Virginia state troopers go all out. I remember reading about how last year they wrote 5,000 speeding tickets in three days. And a couple years before that, during Thanksgiving, they wrote over 7,000 tickets over wow. Thanksgiving. And, and a lot of people think, oh, that's police doing their job. But it's really not. You're taking holidays where a lot of people are already stressed, already short on money, and now you're adding to that. And you're making that worse for people who sure. are already struggling because people are racing around during the holidays trying to get things done and trying to get places. So that's why I would want people to kind of rethink what police are, what police are supposed to do. In no way are they not supposed to be dealing with, you know, the violent crimes and preventing criminal activity like they do. It's very important. But there's a side of policing that disproportionately impacts people who can't pay a lawyer to go to court and make their own speeding go away, you know? Right. So people just really feel that in their pocketbooks and the time they have to put aside to deal with this. So that's kind of my mindset there is that is a microaggression or in some ways a macroaggression when you see $400 fly out of your pocket because you're going four miles over the speed limit um, that people deal with. So I would encourage people to think of it that way of, can we cut down on some of this over-policing and really send this money somewhere else that can kind of build up our community? So. Yeah, I've seen a couple of things um, that, that have really caught my eyes. You know, I think there's some mixed in the terminology i know different places are talking about different things but there's a difference between defund or defunding the police and disbanding the police those right. are two very different things and then the one that really caught me was the 
you know, if you're that upset about defunding the police, well, they've been defunding your public education for years. Right. And you look at public schools and it's just kind of like when you put that in context, it's just like, well, those have still figured out how to operate at a somewhat decent level. So let's everybody just consider it. Um, right. One other thing just off of that, I'm not done with it yet, but Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, or talking, uh-huh. it's either talking to or talking with, I can't remember what, it's one of the two, um, talks about this specifically and looking at judges and bail postings and like how judges feel like it's important to see, and then they look at crime versus they fed all this data into a computer, and the computer basically was just as good, if not better, at taking purely objective information instead of like seeing these face-to-face things and making those decisions. And it was, it's just been really fascinating on like why um, some of these things occur when we think we know what we're doing as humans, but we absolutely really have no clue at all, Definitely. Uh, which is really fascinating. I think a good way is some European cities do it that way the idea of a lot of your traffic ticketing and stuff like that being computerized and just sending you um, a message or sending you a mail with your ticket. I know when I was in Iceland driving around, you'll see these signs and it has like a camera on it with like a flash coming out of it. And it tells you that up ahead, there's a speed camera. That is perfectly preventable. That's perfectly good at proactively preventing speeding. Sure. Because people who ignore the sign will get a speeding ticket. The people who see the sign and pay attention will slow down. I think that's just as effective as seeing a cop on the side of the road. Completely is- objective, too. Yeah, this was exactly. the speed limit. Here's what we clocked you at. Here's Good. the fee schedule. Done. Yep, yeah. I'm with you. It makes yeah. a lot of sense. Like asking you questions, trying to find another charge, none of that. I think that, yeah, that would really help. And I'd ding you for a broken taillight or something. Right, right. Um... I think this is maybe the question you were referring to, um, but one that I keep um, coming back to, and I've seen some things more so popping up on everybody's favorite social media platform, Twitter, um, as, you know, what do you see that might be missing from people that have privilege understanding that they have privilege? And this is one I had just seen, just to caveat this, and for everybody that's listening to this, sorry, you're going to hear this again, is I saw somebody post something. It's like, if you have never had a Supreme, have had your life directly affected by a Supreme Court decision, you have privilege. And uh, that, to me, was just like, oh, okay. That, that is, I, I see that, so. Yeah, so. I have a unique take on this as of recent. Was it, was I talking to you about the implicit bias? Maybe it was someone else, probably someone else. Honestly, I I don't, I don't remember specifically. Have you done like the implicit bias tests ever? I don't know that if I have or not. Okay. So, um, I don't remember the website. Uh, I know I was talking to somebody about this recently, but who I can't remember right now, but, uh, I can probably send you the link to it. It's by Harvard. Harvard has these implicit they're like those psychological tests where you click like good and bad and you react as quickly as you can to a picture yep okay so yes so they have this implicit bias test and it will rank if you are biased in a category of events um they have fat and thin they have um like 
Muslim versus like non-Muslim or religious versus scientific, black versus white. So you just take this quick test and it tells you if you have no bias at all, if you have a slight bias, if you have a moderate bias or a strong bias. So, and something that I have not really shared with anyone, I don't think so, you get this breaking news, but I had taken the um, black versus white, or they made it European American versus African American implicit bias test. And the result that I got was that I had a moderate, not none, not slight, not strong, but I had a moderate preference of European Americans over African Americans. And a lot of my friends were like, well, that can't be right, Susan. Like, that's not possible. Like, you're Black, for starters. <laughs> and you're like one of the most, you know, equal opportunity people I know. But I was like, no, let's not throw out the results of my test. Like, let's think about my life, right? I am from an immigrant family. Already a lot of people know that there's kind of a divide between African Americans and Black Americans, like African immigrants. Mm-hmm. Just because in general, we do have kind of a better chance at succeeding in our aims because we don't have that generational psychological trauma that a lot of the Black community deals with. But on top of that, my parents were kind of very protective of us getting caught up in like Black American culture and kind of deviating from what they believed was the path. So I grew up most of my life in a predominantly white area. And on top of that, I kind of grew up with this understanding in everything from entertainment to school to church, everything kind of telling me that Black people are a problem. That's just how I grew up. Even the good traits that I have were honestly often referred to as white, whether I was called an Oreo or whether I was told I was acting like a white person, whatever it was, that was my upbringing. You know, even in school, I was a minority. Even now, the board of directors for the nonprofit I'm on, I'm the only Black person. My entire county of volunteer firefighters that I work with as a first responder, I'm the only Black person. You know, constantly I am surrounded by a white community. So the idea that I would somehow live that life without any sort of psychological effect and create bias that's imposed on me everywhere I look, it's not possible. So I would say that's kind of my like description of what white privilege is. White privilege is where through no work of your own, you live in a society where someone else is convinced that you're better than them and they can't help it because that's how they were brought up. And I feel like a lot of people ignore the fact that everything in society was kind of built to convince everyone that white people were better than black people. It's better now, absolutely. A lot of people have been able to break through that bias, absolutely. But for those of us who grew up in societies that really think that way, like I did, you don't escape feeling like you are better. You grow up and you feel exactly the way society taught you to feel. And I personally think that that's what white privilege is. So my follow-up on the resources I think will be really good right here because this is another one I brought up to Mercedes is I I need to work on that myself and just to, again, see more eye-opening things. I think I'm definitely getting there, but it it's, can be a never-ending process and it should be. And so I recently haven't read it yet, but it's next up on the list on white fragility. 
and then saw somewhere somebody who was a professor in academic or african-american studies that was basically like go ahead and read it but it's kind of sugar-coated that book specifically and threw out some other options which i've now added to my reading list but i wanted to ask you about any ones that you had um Mercedes had a really good podcast um, to check out, so it doesn't have to necessarily be a book, but if you had anything specific in this realm that you have found to really, that, that really explains everything. Yes. I don't know that there's a book that really explains everything. Wow, or hits on something I specific. I understand what you mean. Yep. I'm going to talk right. about a specific. No, you're fine. You didn't do anything. I just wanted to like preface what I was saying. Yep. Of, like, gotcha. And I'll be all. Um, is um, D.L. Hughley. He, to me, is like a big name. Um, I had, I actually was trying to find one of his books because I was going to bring it as my book recommendation of the day, but he has a book called How to Not Get Shot and Other Advice from White People. That is a really good book hmm. to read. Um, I'm forgetting when it came out. I've had it for years. I know I, I must have borrowed it out to someone maybe, but that is a really good one. And it basically talks about it's just a bunch of examples and him kind of walking through what it's like to live your life and people saying like, if you behave like this, bad things won't happen to you. Um, so that is a really good one. He has just released a new one called Surrender White People and I have not read it yet, but I, I know that's come out and it has pretty good reviews, but How to Not Get Shot is definitely um, a really good one about the kind of tropes. Oh, that's another thing I want to talk about with white privilege are tropes, the tropes of society as far as black people are concerned. Um, I had told someone that 30 Rock is a really good example of that. In American society, you basically have two black people. Yes, there are more, but in general, there are two of them. You have the Tracy Morgan, who is that like really ghetto, really loud, like full blackness, just kind of that hood mentality of the community. And then you have the twofers, who are your, like, very educated, um, he's Harvard educated, right? Wasn't that, like, part of his, have you seen 30 Rock? Never? I have, I, okay. not enough to try and get into too much like depth. writer who is, they call him twofer because he's a double yep. threat because he's black and he went to Harvard. So I would say that kind of American society puts black people in those two boxes. And it's kind of them saying like, if you're this kind of black person, like you'll be all right. Don't be the other kind, you know? And I feel like when we generally look at black Americans in society, we put them in one or the other. So mm -hmm. I would even say in our profession, we get put in that two for box of like, oh, you went to school, you have gainful employment, like good job. You're on this side. And then a lot of other people, even if you're just like a skateboarder who really likes hip hop, you kind of end up in that other box, even sure. if you haven't really done anything to deserve being there. So that's kind of a, yeah. But that book by Dale Hughley is a good one. No, I can see that. And I was just trying to like, you know, where do some athletes fit in, in, in those two things? And I was just thinking about the Fox News person to LeBron, you know, the quote unquote, shut up and dribble. Um, yeah. thing whereas I, I would I and this is making a lot of assumptions but like to I, I would doubt you would ever go and say to Ben Carson who is you know a neurosurgeon and all of this is you know shut up and operate I don't I don't think that that would be the same thing because and I think LeBron is 
what he does is just unbelievable, you know, for to call out somebody like that for what he's doing in the world in terms of good and his platform, you know, you pick the wrong person to kind of mess with in that regard. Um, but yes, I, I see what, exactly what you're saying. I think actually that also kind of plays into the implicit bias conversation um, that I mentioned earlier is that like when you look at someone like Ben Carson, and again, this is implicit bias, right? I have a moderate bias. I can definitely identify people in the community who are very prominent out there who I would definitely say could probably test with having an implicit bias to European Americans over African Americans who are black, right? right? Because you kind of grew up in a society that has conditioned your brain to think it's conditioning. It's not like you chose to think that way. It's just an implicit bias that makes you kind of look at a community and go, well, could we be better? Why aren't we, you know? And like you said with LeBron, people don't want to hear from that side, that category of them. They want to hear from the category of them that they approve of. And that sure. more often tends to be the category that has that implicit bias where they've bought into that societal idea of like, you know, and it's implicit. It's not on purpose, but that idea of to some degree, this is the fault of the black community. They prefer hearing from those people who've grown up in a whitewashed culture, not the people who have kind of grown up in their black community within, you know, surrounded by black people all the time and said, we're telling you the exact same thing. They're like, we don't want to hear it from you though. We want to hear it from, from these good people over here. Right. <laughs> yeah. One that just to kind of tie it back into AT, I think a little bit um, was the thoughts on like encouraging networking um, for this. This podcast has been my opportunity um, short of trying to get back to a convention at some point whenever we're all allowed to move about the world freely again. Um, but I love to hear ideas from you. Sure. Um... I mean, I would say Twitter and things like your podcast is a great platform. Like we said at the round table, I think some of us were like, this is the most amount of African-American <laughs> athletic trainers we had seen in a long time. I know for me and my company, it was me and the other black person, <laughs> whatever. Actually, I think we have two now. I think we have two dishes. So there's three of us now. But we would go to our meeting where we have, you know, a hundred plus athletic trainers and we're like, oh. And you kind of like sit together, you know, but for a lot of this, that's kind of the most we've been able to network um, with this. So awesome job with that. But Twitter, <laughs> Twitter is great. I would say Twitter is really good for just being able to hear from other people and speak to other people. I feel like networking is kind of taken for granted a lot of the time and people don't realize how many perspectives you're missing out on when you don't network. And it's the same way, honestly, with the race conversation. The more you surround yourself with other people from different walks of life, your bias will kind of ebb away because you can't really justify <laughs> a lot of the explicit biases anymore. You might have some implicit bias left, but overall, the more you interact with other people, the more understanding you become. And I feel like athletic training needs that. There's a lot of partial networking and then you kind of have this across the aisle mentality, which makes, I'm like, we're on the same boat. Everyone. Right, right. <laughs> so um, I think that I, goes into our advocating thing here in a minute, but. 
<laughs> right. Yes, we will. But but that is that is a good thing to me is is really just being able to network. And it's happened more and more. And I think we've seen a lot of even a small shift. And I think a big part the thing that kind of helped that was our profession kind of seeing that we were not overtly supporting <laughs> equality across the board. And we we're just kind of like, ah, is this, you know, and it's like, maybe we need to network a little more and figure out, you know, what are we thinking? What is going on? What are we missing here? So yeah, that helped. Yeah. I think the thing I, I, I like about Twitter is you can connect. The thing I struggle with Twitter sometimes is you start seeing these threads that come up and it's people just going back and forth. And I almost always want to just jump in and just say, Hey, get on a zoom call and hash it out. Like actually talk right. to a person to me. Cause a, you know, you, you can't, you can, but you can't tell tone out of text. Yeah. In most cases, especially when it's down to 200 80 characters and you see some of these things mushroom and there's all, you know, support one way or maybe and support the other way, but like come together and have a conversation. Like, right. And they even bring that up, you know, it's only so many characters. Well, we all have the ability to do that. I don't know that we like to, cause it's uncomfortable to get into those things, but, and actually look at somebody in the face when you do it, you know, so you're not just a keyboard warrior, but, um, that is one thing I think I'd like to see more is people not just getting into it. Like there's a couple of feuds that occur on Twitter. Um, I'm sure some people listening to this will know about some of the ones I'm talking about, but I, I'd love to host that. Why don't we just talk about it and actually have a rational conversation instead of just blasting each other, you know, with sound bites. I think Sorry, that I'll get off my, Hi, horse. That should be like an anon Twitter bot is like when a feud is happening, just drop a Zoom link and be like, you guys go hash this out in a room. Discuss, please. There you go. My favorite is when I see the the spat and then I scroll back up and I'm just like, where did this even come from? Where sure. did the, you know how you can't even tell where it began? And you're sometimes, yeah, it's hard to trace back. I, I, I get confused I'm at times. I'm like, what am I missing? Like, is this? <laughs> But I will say on the flip side, Twitter has kind of been good about that too. I've had um, even someone I talked to last week on Zoom, he's like, hey, graduated. I don't know if he wants me to say his name, so I will <laughs> just to be careful. But he's like, hey, graduated from my DAT program and just like wanted to talk to you about everything going on and just like really want to talk about what's been happening. And that was just like, I was like, sure, why not? Sure, and so yeah. that was like a zoom chat and kind of created that instant networking and ability to just really talk and know how we feel that never would have happened i don't think in a platform that's not twitter so no i i, I, I agree that, that's very true but yeah i agree with that there should be a kind of someone comes in and goes hey everyone just go into this room and hash it out let's look normal <laughs> yeah um, so before we kind of transition to the advocating for athletic training, I, I did want to touch base and make sure that we kind of covered everything around race that you wanted to. Um, so we don't bypass anything. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I was definitely hopefully able to share a few things that help yep, people understand absolutely. a little bit about, you know, what goes on out there and what kind of happens in here a bit for us. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, then this one we kind of left very wide open, but um, that's perfect is, you know, advocating within the profession. Um, 
you know, and just to highlight some of the notes you had, you know, education on showing worth and you kind of mentioned some of that with the data you guys are collecting, um, advocating within your job. And that's something I feel super passionate about in terms of anybody that's in a leadership in quotes or supervisory position, um, getting out on your own and then looking, you know, shifting jobs and looking at different things. So I'll just kind of turn it over to you and let you, let you go. Sure. Um, yes. So the first thing you talked about showing your value, I feel like in our programs, we go through that, that very short part where we learn about billing and all that other stuff and how to bill and, (laughs) I honestly don't even remember that from my program. I could have not been paying attention. That's very possible, but I've learned so much more about it lately. Yeah, well, we had like a pretty big project. And the good thing for me is though we work through like workman's comp, they deal with, you know, we don't really do a lot of billing in the side of things. So that kind of helps us. I know maybe people in the PT side or, or even the traditional side might a little bit more, but that's not I'm just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what, what is their care is all I care about. But um, we learn a bit about that. But I would say even to the point of um, how we write our notes, we kind of learn the whole soak note and hops kind of thing. But we don't learn. I feel like we need to do a better job of learning how to um, track outcomes. Mm-hmm. That we don't get a lot of in our education programs even like what information to document when you're starting a case or starting um an injury with someone and then how to then document those outcomes and those outcomes aren't just like outcomes directly related to the injury but even outcomes and things like sports or performance or at least for us in the occupational world a lot of our outcomes are um our efficiency how much production is happening how much downtime how many breaks are needed how many people um are tri or so are like time where people can't do their job because they're injured so i feel like we really need an emphasis on being able to document those things because those that's really how we learn to advocate for ourselves um i feel like when we come out we're like these soap note machines (laughs) we're able to you know and we can apply oh like basics of therapeutic exercise or even advanced therapeutic exercise we've learned. But there's this big picture of being able to really map out and say, look how much we've done for you. And that really helps um, with advocating. So I think that's really important. It's for everyone, no matter what your setting is, what is your worth? How do you show your worth? And that will kind of help you where you're not worried when you're advocating for yourself um as someone who just went through a period advocating for herself i knew why i was doing it it still made it hard i still had the proof that i deserved the pay i was asking for but it just like you already have that stress of asking for more money or asking for more of anything and that stress is compounded if you don't know what you're talking about so that will help with people who are like i feel like i deserve more Take those feelings, look at them, objectify them, put that on paper. That will help you within your job. When you ask your boss, you can say like, look at how many, you know, look how many more cases I did. Look how many more follow-ups I did. Look at how much prevention I did. Look at programs that I initiated. Were these programs successful? Things like that um, will just help people. And then that helps you advocate to people who are outside, like your stakeholders, And this is something that industrial athletic trainers are really, really, really good at because corporations, 
have a lot of money, but they don't like spending money willy nilly. So it's not, <laughs> it's not just like, um, it's not the same as with um, the secondary school settings where you can, you kind of have this stuck budget. I can honestly say at the plant I'm at right now, I am blessed beyond words with the fact that I can probably say that my budget is unlimited because it basically is. Well, we're all jealous now. <laughs> I know, you're good. And that's something that really only are like professional, you know, or a lot of sure. D2 and some D3 can say, but no, my budget is basically unlimited. I remember when I was putting in our, our heat program where we were going to weigh people in and out and I went to our HSE like safety head and I was like, hey, I have a project that I really want to initiate. I think it'll help us with the heat stress and all the stuff we have during the summer and I need some money. And he was like, oh, well, like how much money are we talking here? And I was like, well, a few hundred dollars. And he was like, oh, he's like, don't bother me unless there are like zeros on the end. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, what? And I ordered whatever I wanted and made it happen. Um, we just got into dynamic tape because we use a lot of kinesio tape already, but we yeah. uh, dynamic tape work in. So that, but really I would say that money is kind of not an issue to us. But at the same time, you need to let them know that they're spending money on you because it works. Right. You got to talk that language of it all comes down to dollars and a spreadsheet for them. And so the more you can talk that. Absolutely. It all comes down to like, how much money have we saved you? And not just that, but how much production have we enabled you to access because of how good we are at keeping people from getting injured or returning people to work faster. So I feel like that is really something that I don't know. I hope it's like that for a lot of the other industry people, but you get so good at you're like, I could have unlimited dollars as long as I can prove why I need them. And so if you do that, then I'm like, Hey, I can show you all day why I need unlimited dollars. So it really is nice. You know, I, in my program, I grew up under, I was trained to understand we would have to make these really strict inventory orders and figuring out your order for the beginning of each season. We really don't bother with any of that. We just kind of, well, that's fortunate for you. (laughs) Yes. That is a, that is a small thing that I really am grateful. And that's part of what makes me when I think of moving into something else, I'm like, "Mm, no, I work for a million dollar corporation and, and they don't ask me questions when I order more CoFlex, so. <laughs> yep, we're in day two of our fiscal year, and I've already accounted about three quarters of my budget to be spent already, and oh. we're, we're two days in, so no, that's planning for the year, which helps, but. I remember um, that from my high school, like, my high school, um, when I was an AT intern, we were in the middle of, like, basketball season, and we had, I think, like, two or three boxes of athletic training tape left. At the high school, I was at this, the, this like single A high school, and the athletic trainer, he was like, "You guys, like, why are you getting taped? You really need to tell me because we don't have tape to waste, you know." Yep. And I that's really how we operate. Like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Man, this is like really, you know." But now for me, my guys come in, they like have a burn, and we patch them up, and I'm like, "Here's a roll of CoFlex. Here's some other stuff, you know, to deal sure. with at home. We'll see you tomorrow." And you, yeah, that's really a blessing. But again they want to know you're putting it to good use. So um, that kind well, of, that was really- the other thing. Yeah. I was going to say is, you know, when you get all those production numbers up, you're probably going to have pretty good patient satisfaction because I would assume, you know, like, like athletes, the vast majority of them want to be back. Like they want to be working. And so when you can bring that, you're having that patient satisfaction because you're doing it as quickly as possible. Right. 
and they don't feel like crap, like referencing your heat stress thing, you know, where you're actively showing them that they're going to feel better, you know, because you're monitoring this, like what a powerful thing to present to somebody, you know, and if you can get a supervisor that's all over it, man, world. Oh, absolutely. Especially with heat. Um, Industrial heat is unique because our people work 12 hours. Yeah. So we have that mentality of like, oh, you got to get through a three hour practice. How do we keep this? You know, they're exerting themselves. What do we need to do? It is so different, especially where I am. We have an area of our plant. Anyone who works with like vulcanizing rubber, or even like a lot of your spray booths for cars and trucks where they coat them, those are really hot. I mean, we can get up to 140 plus degrees in front of some of these, you know, presses people work in front of. Yeah. (laughs) So when we started this program, I started it because we would get new hires and they would come in and they wouldn't fall out on like their first day. Some of them, even the second day, it was like the third day was multiple days of kind of losing fluid and not being able to get it back. And when we started that program, I would easily, I think the most I've seen is someone lost 16 pounds in a shift. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, typically for these guys, it's like six to eight pounds. A lot of them, if they're not doing too well, the guys who do really well lose like two to three pounds and they know they're going to get that back. But I had a guy who lost like 27 pounds over a week. He lost like 12 pounds, eight pounds, and then 16 pounds, I think. And I remember talking to him and I was like, do you feel okay? And he was like, no, I feel absolutely terrible. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. thank you terrible too and it was a lot of work with him helping him figure out helping us get the right balance of like carbohydrates and electrolytes and water and really just helping him figure out what worked for him but after a month he was like thank you so much for helping me i used to feel Mm -hmm. comfortable at work all the time you know these people can't produce they can't lift things and you know it's really hard so definitely some guys (laughs) i'll see their numbers and i'm like how do you feel? And they're like, I feel awful. And I'm like, yeah, I can tell. <laughs> right. So definitely that's a way to show your worth and really help people just want to. And then of course the company is like, people aren't passing out. This is great news. Do whatever you want. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's really nice. <laughs> oh, what other part of this advocating would you like to cover? Um, let me think. Oh, So that's another thing. Um, I would say the way that we present ourselves all the time is a big part of advocating. I feel like (laughs) we kind of show behind the curtain a good bit, whether it's on social media or even at work and things like that. And I think this idea of like people are always watching us, especially since our profession for some people when they hear about our profession they're hearing about it for the first time or even it's like really kind of somewhere on their radar so at any point what they see from an athletic trainer can shape what they think of athletic trainers agreed (laughs) so i would say that's a big part of our advocacy too not saying we can't be human we can't share jokes i share some ridiculous things on my twitter i'm sure um but the idea of you know, in the end, we kind of have to answer to our call and make sure other people aren't feeling a burden because of our behavior. I know now with the secondary schools that are really struggling with like getting back out there, you know, it's that idea of every single day we're at work or every single day we're at campus or we're on our job site, we're kind of giving that 100%, even on the days we don't feel great. 
to make sure that when we're not there, they're not like, oh, honestly, it's fine. Like, <laughs> it's fine not having that. But that they feel that they need us. My plan, I was off work for a month. We were shut down. You know, we kind of felt that sting. But the second they were going to start start up again, they called all of us athletic trainers back out there a week before they started up because our health and safety department was literally like, we're not doing a single thing in this plant until our athletic trainers are back here. That's because awesome. Yeah, because that's the value that we've given to them of like our health and safety guy advocates for us so much. He doesn't want anyone touching anything in our plant. <laughs> He's like, where are they? Are they back? Bring them back. So they brought us back in and they don't want to start without us. So right. maybe that could help, um, you know, other athletic trainers too in their settings. You know, it, it might seem easy to kind of roll with the coaches or kind of do, you know, our supervisors of our plant behave in ways sometimes that I might want to behave that way, but it doesn't make sense for me to behave that way because they started our plant up without a lot of supervisors, but they didn't start our plant back up without any athletic trainers. So right. I, it's such a double-edged sword because, you know, I, I, we were joking with somebody else about, you know, like towel gate and, you know, should an athletic trainer have a towel over their shoulder and whatnot and whatever, I get it, you know, and that's, and that's a hard part about, you know, that's a very visual part of the profession because it's the NFL, but like at some degree, and I don't know that there has to be a dress code. Like I know polos and khakis have been like the thing, you know, for athletic trainers, but if we want to be considered, medical professionals you know which we are and we want to have that like you got to take that into context of what you're presenting in that right. realm too in that you know there's a reason doctors are either in scrubs as a uniform or white coats or shirt and tie or you know professional dress like you got to take that into context to some degree when it comes to that, to and even just what you were saying, like there's times you you might want to act like you know and have fun because the coaches are off goofing off, but you got to remember that you're in a different spot. I think that's I think that's really important and can be tough, but I, I, was, I think secondary school and high school is one of the most important advocates for ATs because that is most people interaction with an athletic trainer by and large so if you have a awesome at in high school as a college at we love you because it just makes our job easier if you had someone that just didn't it just didn't go well that we've now got to work a lot to re to gain some trust that we right. didn't, might not have had to otherwise and I, I think that's huge i agree yeah i mean i was i was thinking about talgate earlier today because there's a question when you're asking like the five i was gonna bring it up it's like susan <laughs> <So> <laughs> But I agree. I think that what's happening in the secondary setting is really horrible. And I think some of it is really schools prioritizing health. But we also need to ask ourselves, is there something we could have done differently to make sure we were on that sideline when those sports return? Because that's something our company has to ask ourselves all the time. When we lose a client, yeah, we can blame that client for deciding that saving dollars and safety was more important than somewhere else. But we also have to say like, is there something we could have done differently? And yes, sometimes the answer is no. You did everything totally perfect. Sure. Yep. Sometimes the answer is like we could have improved in areas that made us a little bit more invaluable. And, and that I think is really important when it comes to advocating for ourselves for us to think about. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think that looking in first and really being honest with yourself across this whole conversation I mean, I think that principle applies to 
everything. Right. And then trying to figure it out outside of that is, yeah, that's so important. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, anything else that you really want to get to in terms of advocacy or do you want to jump into those AT chat five questions? I don't think so. I think that, um, I think we covered it. Uh, one thing I will say specifically to my minority athletic trainers out there is be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be because you are already in the minority and everything you do, like I said, we're often put in boxes. Athletic trainers find themselves put in boxes, boxes on boxes. Okay. Guys, <laughs> like one of those Russian dolls. So <laughs> be the best version of yourself that you can be, don't put each other down and let's just keep fighting the good fight and being the most memorable experience for people. Like being that, that kind of, that one that people always think positively of. So yeah. All right, let's go. <laughs> Where do you see athletic training going in the next five to 10 years? And could you just kind of set the example if, it, if it's kind of in a specific thing? Mm, um, I think that I see athletic training becoming more led by athletic trainers. Maybe I'm hoping <laughs> in my idea, but I think that I see it being less trusting hospitals and physical therapy clinics and stuff to carry the torch for us and more becoming us making sure we are where we need to be. And I hope that that is the case in the next five to 10 years or I have a lot of concerns. So that's where I see us going. I see it becoming more about us getting ourselves hired into areas, us sure. where we are providing these, these um, services and not just being like a line item for another profession. Oh, I like that. If you go back and give yourself some advice as a younger athletic trainer, a, when would that be? So set that time frame. And uh, B, what would that advice be? Can I go back to being an athletic training student? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> this is um, your question to answer. So what, I mean, whatever you want. Uh, let's see. I would definitely go back to being an athletic training student. And... Um, I think my advice would be to have fully double majored, not just like major and minor. And I feel like that almost seems like it would be taking on too much, but I feel like I learned a bit of areas that helped me be an athletic trainer and it would have just been nice to have just like even more mm -hmm. knowledge. Um, and and not, I'm not even giving myself a specific area because I did minor in business, but I could have, I feel like, gone ahead and just done the whole thing since I was sure. only it's short. And that could have helped me as an athletic trainer or even, like, the psychology side of things. I was really into sports psych, and, like, that could have helped with, like, a lot of the mental side of what we do or yeah. even, like, the research, really anything. Um, bring another skill set with me into athletic training. That would have been my advice. Yes. I like that one and agree. <laughs> what has been the most influential resource that you have found in your career? Besides the Journal of Occupational Medicine? <laughs> I mean, that, I, that would be the first time that that has been brought up on this. So that, that would be a good one. It 
is such a good one, um, especially with like a lot of the international research that is done. I feel like we do not do enough studying on like occupational health and occupational medicine here in the U.S. because Norway and Sweden and some of these other countries do a ton of it. Japan, China, they do so much. I really am kind of jealous and I wish we could run some of these um, studies here. So yes, that is a great resource. I love reading about everything from like pregnancy and shift work to a lot of the heat stuff um, that we've utilized. Just so many cool things. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on them. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> Original. That's good. Thanks. Um, if you could go and change or eliminate one thing, and that could be a modality or common practice or a mindset or anything else of your choosing um, in the field of a- and profession of athletic training, what would it be? So this is where we come back to that advocacy conversation, because this is what I was waiting for. Um, I would change a mindset situation. I feel like I'm rolling back to the conversation you guys just had on the the 50 pod, but I would change our mindset of when we stand up and when we sit down, because there are some times, especially on Twitter, where there are some conversations, it would be like the Avengers uniting over a parking ticket right? (laughs) Where I'm looking and I'm like, this is what we stand up for, guys. Like, we're all out here. We're all really here. Why is this the topic? (laughs) And then there are times where you have a really good topic and it would be like the Avengers staying home when there was like a threat to the planet, you know? Where Mm -hmm. I'm like, why are there only six athletic trainers in this conversation? Where is everyone else? (laughs) So that's what I would change. If I could change anything, it would be what makes us all appear and what makes us say like, I'm going to just scroll by that one. So, yeah. Yeah. That's something in just watching Twitter and I don't, it's hard to say, you know, if it's huge or whatever it, it's cause it's own little microcosm, but you know, we have all these issues outside of the profession, getting people hired at high schools and getting a hundred percent occupancy there. And, these emerging settings, whether that's proper term or not, but these, you know, ones that are growing and everything. And I know there's always going to be differences of opinion within the profession. And I think that's good, but it seems like we spend a lot more time on really weird things that to your point, I I love your analogy, by the way, that is fantastic. I might have to use that in some certain situations with the Avengers. Um, But, like, we've got so many other things as a profession to worry about. Like, can we shift our focus and our energy to that and stop coming back over? I'm sure maybe this is where you were going to bring up the towel thing. Um, But, man, like, come on. That, 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 yeah, I I couldn't, could not agree with you more on that one. That's exactly what it was because around the time of the towel thing, we were trying to make a push over here on the Arkansas side because I live in like a bi-state, you know, town, but on the Arkansas side for, because Arkansas as a state does not recognize the industrial setting for athletic trainers. And we had tried, like I had tried within my own company. I had tried like really talking, even I talked, I was able to get a couple of people on Twitter to just be like, can we push because the bill had died the first time and we're having a second go at it. And the physical therapy, um, 
Association had really come out and sent out a mailer saying like, tell your people to vote against this and we'll let athletic trainers do whatever they want, or <laughs> kind of how they came out. So I was really trying to help us, like we need this setting so badly, like our skills are perfect for this. And then the whole towel thing was happening. I was like, well, this is great, but athletic trainers are still trying to get recognized for the industrial setting in Arkansas. So we can just divert just a little bit, a little bit of the energy, just some of it over here. <laughs> we can, because yes, did we solve the towel issue? Yes, we did. And <laughs> having a towel over your shoulder is not an unprofessional thing and it does make you just as qualified. But we're still severely lacking in so many areas. And I really wish, yeah, that's my thing is like when we really decide to, because when we want to come out, we do. Sure. It's honestly, really impressive sometimes. And you're like, yeah, this is awesome. We're all here. It's just sometimes the topic. Like I said, sometimes I'm like, this is a parking ticket, guys. We just, we could, uh, you know, save some of this for, for something else. So. Well, if it means anything to anybody listening, and obviously you, our platform isn't gigantic, but we will definitely help support and try and spread all of those other things. And I'm not entirely sure when everybody will be listening to this, but at the time of this recording, I mean, high schools have been dropping ATs and that's gone all over the place. Um, There was a petition going around and probably still is to try and get something to the federal level on that. And I've seen that in more places than I care. You I know. have not. Oh I mean, yeah, um, there's a change.org for that. Which, in, in addition to that, as of this recording, it's July second. Um, Boston University is talking about, or has announced that they're going to drop their athletic training education program, and mm-hmm. that has been, as far as I'm aware, like one of the largest and very well done programs in the country. And so people are coming out in droves for that to make sure that they're keeping, that they try and help keep that um, going. Is it a bachelor's program and that's why? Or are they um, I think it's, the, it's now a master's program and I, I would have to do a little bit more reading into why exactly. Um, yeah. But I think it was around COVID um, and as kind of the reasoning for doing that and, I don't pretend to know how endowments work and how universities can draw right. out of that, but I'm fairly certain I saw that Boston's endowment is like 2.3 billion with a B dollars. Um, so I don't know that money <laughs> is necessarily the issue, but I also don't know how that works in terms of financing um, for a university, but it's been again, a, a rally point And I think a very justified one, you know, to help keep the profession and a traditionally very strong program from going under for no reason that seems to be logical. Right. So. That's, in, that's, yeah, that's, that's new to me. I'm going to look into that too, because that's. Yeah. That okay. one's been circulating more. So the last couple of days I've seen that one on Twitter and Facebook. So. Yeah. Wow. But st- Okay, I'll look into that. Isn't that crazy that their budget is like, or their endowment is it? You said it was what, two point what? Two point three billion, I believe. You know that the NYPD police budget is like almost six billion dollars. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's, it's <laughs> unreal. They like run what? Like an entire university is like, we're gonna educate people for it. It's crazy some of these numbers when you think about it. 
Wow. Yeah, that's important. Okay, I'll look into that one too. See, you're always educating. I'm telling you, this podcast <laughs> is going to grow more, I think, than you have. I know it's grown a lot from since you guys, when you guys started, but it's going to grow a lot. Appreciate that. Excited. All right, one last more. Qu- last question, yeah. What does being an athletic trainer mean to you? Mm, being an athletic trainer to me means not letting access to health care be the reason that people can't do what they want to do. Um, I think that even besides just the basic stuff that we're good at, as far as like the physical medicine aspects that we are proficient in, we are an avenue for people who typically don't have access to healthcare. And I've talked about that a lot, um, especially like in my, <laughs> in my setting, in mm-hmm. my place, everyone has healthcare. Okay. Like these people work pretty good blue collar jobs. They all have healthcare, but I consistently have people who have not been to the doctor in 16 years, 22 years, yep. however many years, they just kind of live their life. Just people just feel cut off from healthcare. They feel like it's something you only go to when you have a stroke and they don't think of that preventative side of things and just making sure your health like issues aren't sneaking up on you. Um, so that's kind of been something that I've been doing more than I ever expected coming from the sports level. But even for athletes who typically wouldn't go to the doctor for things, but they just have that immediate professional available to them. And if they need more from there, they have access to that. But especially at my plan where like someone is having something going on and I'm like, you need to go to a doctor. <laughs> have you not? And they're like, I haven't been to a doctor in 16 years. And I'm yeah. like, well, you need to go to one. And so we have rolls <laughs> through, you know, um, offices that we already work with and um, places that we already send people. And so I think a big part of what I do is just getting people to a doctor when they definitely should have been at one years ago and they sure. just been for one reason or another. And then when it comes to things like not feeling confident in like their ability to move or things like chronic ankle or foot problems or knee and hip problems and small things like that, that we can really change for them and fix for them. Um, it's really nice for them to be like, man, like I didn't know any of this and now I do. And I feel so much better and not letting stand in the way of life. I really like that answer. That's a good one. Um, so kind of in closing then anything else you'd like to cover? And then if not, uh, where can people find you, follow you, or get in touch? Um, um, I don't know. I feel like we covered a lot. I we did. Just, <laughs> just say to people, just really reach out to people and talk to people. Understand where people are coming from. Some of the things we've talked about are just trying to help people understand what people mean by things, whether it's the meaning of the word white privilege or the meaning of defending the police or the meaning of what an athletic trainer is. A lot of life comes down to communication and so many miscommunications and so many times us just deciding that this is what something is and not really hearing what it means. So I would just say for us to put our best foot forward as much as we can and to communicate with people, network with people, talk to people, 
And um, you can find me, if you want to talk to me, uh, on Twitter. And it's at I-M-A-S-T-A-A-H. I'm a star, so. We'll link that up. (laughs) Yeah. So you can probably catch me on Twitter. It's the easiest place um, to find me. I'm always listening. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for taking the time again to chat.